My name is Trip Warman, and in this episode of SME VC, I sat down with Chris Dowd. Chris works on the investment team at Belus Capital and was a Fulbright Scholar in Mexico City. Prior to moving to Mexico City, Chris worked at Google in a number of different positions, including as a Strategic Partnership Development Manager, a Google.org Fellow, and as a Global Affairs Analyst. He was also an intern in the Executive Office of the President of the United States in the White House. In this episode of SME VC, we discussed ag tech and mining in Latin America, especially Chile's recent move to nationalize lithium production, what it was like for Chris to start a restaurant in Mexico City, why elite Latin American technology operators are founding climate tech startups, and the geopolitical and global security need for climate tech innovation. We discussed all this and more in this episode of SMEA VC. Okay, Chris, could you start by telling the audience a little bit more about your work history up to and including your investment thesis around climate tech in Latin America? Sure thing. Well, first of all, Trip, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to, to be on the show. So a little bit about my my personal journey. Um, I grew up in grew up in the U.S. Uh, in Washington D.C. Mom was a journalist, and my dad was in the shipping business. So we had a very kind of international conversation around around the dinner table. Um, for that reason, I went on and was you know really interested in, in foreign affairs, studied international economics and and security in in, in undergrad. Um, in the summers, I spent a lot of my time working working on political campaigns. Thinking, you know, I wanted to spend spend my career in D.C., so I went and was uh, working in the Obama administration, and um, really caught caught a bug there and absolutely loved it. But at the end of the day, I knew that uh, you know I had a growing interest in in the private sector as well. So I, after college, I moved to uh, San Francisco and was at was at Google for for about four years. Um, initially, was working for the the chief legal officer um, for Google Maps at the time when. Everything was really kicking off around around GDPR. Uh, my later roles were more focused on on product and 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 business development. So I helped launch a program the, uh, through the AI Impact Challenge at Google.org, where we're using Google's core geospatial infrastructure and cloud infrastructure and AI infrastructure to uh, to produce public data sets around um, asset level emissions. And then I was leading strategy and partnerships for Google Search around sustainability and crisis response. So that's everything from um, on Google search, when you search certain, you know, technical terms around, you know, scientific methods in the climate change space, or, um, you even, you know, want to understand what's the, what's the quickest way to get somewhere without having to, your vehicle loitering too much, you know, on Google maps. So a lot of different services that when you have a base of a billion plus users, small tweaks can, can go a long way. Um, in that post, I, you know, had a global, global team and a global perspective, but at the end of the day, my butt was in a seat in San Francisco, and I felt that I wanted to have some international experience with myself uh, for myself. So I decided to pursue, uh, you know, a long-term dream of doing a, a Fulbright um, after you know being inspired by my brother who had done one ten years earlier. And a year later, I was in Mexico doing my my Fulbright scholarship and also um, working at Dallas Capital. So that brings me to to our thesis a little bit and you know what what do we do at Belus and what do we focus on and what do you think is important if you have a little background Belus is Belus is on the tenure um the, the founders Diego Sobristi and Rogelio de los Santos um you know this this metaphor doesn't go so far talking to my Latin American colleagues but there is a Mount Rushmore of venture capital there beyond it in Latin America we focus on seed through series B companies writing checks from half a million up to six million US dollars and really the key thing for us is finding is finding founder market fit, you know, really trying to understand what is that unique actionable insight 
that a founder can take to an industry to be, to be disrupted. I spent most of my time working on our climate thesis. Uh, so the core questions there for me are, one, is this, these, is this, is this company scalable? Is it repeatable? Is it technically and from a drawdown perspective efficacious and sound? Um, and is venture capital really the right mechanism for this kind of project, right? Um, there are some situations where, yes, this need, this solution, maybe it's a refining, uh, you know, refinery for lithium needs to, needs to exist to improve the decarbonization opportunity for that industry, but it might not be a VC backable business. So really balancing those dynamics and, um, and recognizing that, you know, we're a, we're a software first, um, software first find and, and so we're looking for, for those sorts of opportunities. Amazing. And then that, so the last thing I'll mention there is, you know, from a climate perspective, in Latin America, we don't expect that people are willing to pay green premiums. Mm. So we have to be smart about the companies we invest in. And are, do they fit into a consumer or a business's everyday operation in life and make their life easier? You know, especially in a macro context like today where um, things are expensive and, and, and businesses are cutting down mm. and there isn't as much leeway to, to support emerging ESG initiatives. So they really need to fit with the bottom line of pocketbooks and, and, and I appreciate that foundation. You mentioned the Fulbright. I'd love to hear about, you know, your experience in that program. And then you were paired with Thalus, which is, it seems like you won the lottery there. I'd love to hear about your experience in that program and how that really brought you into VC. Great thing. So, so as I mentioned, uh, 10 years ago now, I was in India visiting my brother who was, uh, who was a Fulbright scholar there. And I was just so inspired by the community that he was surrounded with. You know, these, these characters come from all walks of life, all disciplines, and are, and are really just brought together by the idea that cultural and, and diplomatic exchange is, is a powerful tie that pulls countries together. And, and the program was, you know, came out of World War II peace initiatives, right, where we we'll want to help young people connect across cultures and across languages. So that, that piece has really stuck with me at a young age. Um, so when I arrived to when I arrived to to Mexico as a full writer, I was I was really excited because my thesis around being in Mexico was the fact that you know the U.S. and Mexico relationship is not going anywhere. Um, it is very deep um, economically, culturally, politically, linguistically, artistically. Right? There's an incredible book called Vanishing Frontiers, which which really sort of set my sights on Mexico, um, trying to understand the ways that our two countries really have to work together and be deeply connected. And so when you start to think about venture capital as a, as a, as a mechanism for scaling great ideas, um, there's was no better place in my mind than to, to be with, with Belus. So I started off, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of part-time, part-time basis with the team. And when my full ride was, was over, I came on, on full-time and investment team. And I was inspired by the fact that they're really at the, at the cutting edge and had a really strong thesis around our companies need to be regional. They need to have an impact outside of their specific country. And, and the U.S.-Mexico relationship is, is, is a deep, deep um, place for these, for these companies. You mentioned traveling to India and then realizing something. You did a whole trip around Latin America and you learned a bunch of other stuff. I'd love to hear about where you went on that trip, what you learned, the big takeaways. Tell us all about that. For sure. So, so yeah, I mean, the first, the first question is, I guess, why did I do it? Um, I think... A similar, similar itch that I had when I was at Google, I was having at one point when I was at Belize where I said, you know, I'm, I'm loving this job and I'm loving this work, but the reality is that my, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here in Mexico city, talking to founders from countries I've never been 
where I have no sense of the cultural pretext. I have no sense of the the, the real deep um, things that drive the innovation system. And to think that Latin America is just sort of a, a monolith that you can invest in and support founders across across the continent, I think is a fool's errand. So I really wanted to go and and I recommend that this this trip didn't didn't result in 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 uh, me being an expert in any way, but just the small things that you pick up, you know, sitting sitting around a table with with founders in in Santiago, or you know, visiting a lithium mine in in northern in northern Chile, or you know, sitting and, and hosting a, a happy hour with with um, barn investments in Sao Paulo, right? Your your learning is is doubled and tripled, and the things that people share with you in person there that might not share with you on Zoom, right? You get to really, really get proximate to the things that are driving these ecosystems forward. So, I took six weeks. Um, I went to Bogota, Medellin, Sao Paulo, Santiago, Montevideo, and Buenos Aires. Um, in each of those places, I hosted hosted small events, ran around the city, meeting with founders, with VCs, with with institutional capital, to really try to understand, you know, what what makes this place tick and who are the heroes of this industry and who are the, what are the you know regulatory fears that people have who are the industrial incumbents that everyone wants to have as a b2b customer right um so all of that pretext where if you arrive on a 45 minute pitch with a founder you'll just never get there. and as an investor that's that's key and and i think it's important also for our portfolio companies that we have in those countries to just meet with that and say hey yeah we we have our zoom monthly we we check in but I'm actually here and and let's talk and would love to meet your family and all, all that sort of stuff, right? It really matters. So it was an incredible trip and I would recommend anyone that that is investing in, in Latin America to to make a similar trip, right? It's um I, I think I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by not being really approximate to the problems these founders are trying to solve. You mentioned the lithium mine. I think that that must be an incredible trip. I'm I'm hoping to make it out to a lithium mine once in my life as well. But you've written about mining. You've written about ag tech. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing in those spaces in Latin America right now? Absolutely. So so yeah, maybe we'll just start with the mining piece. Um, so a, a few things. Like I think we are look at the U.S., look at Europe. The commitments that are made from a corporate perspective, from a government perspective, and decarbonization are once in a generation. Um, and there's one thing, which is to, to, to say what you're going to do. And then there's another thing to actually have the providers and the capacity to make these kinds of transitions. Let's just start with, with batteries. You know, there's critical, critical inputs to battery electrification in the United States that is, don't exist domestically and rely heavily on trade. So I'm really interested in the way that, you know, Latin America and the lithium triangle, you call it in, in, in South America are going to play a real outsized role in expanding their supply to support decarbonization efforts in the U.S. and Europe. Um, seen some numbers around the fact that capacity of the last 20 years is going to need to double in the next five years for critical minerals in Latin America. So part of that, you know, has uh, last two weeks ago that Chile has nationalized their, their lithium industry. And I think part of that and some of the others are macro movements you're seeing and the level of investment the level of new discovery that's happening there's a huge transition and anytime that there's a transition of that scale and speed there's an opportunity for technology to play a role whether it's hiring and and vetting talent that works in the mining industry and having marketplaces for talent to work on on these mines to 
using AI and, and machine learning to improve discovery rates. You know, a company out of Chile is really advanced on this called Mineral Forecast. Um, or if it's just understanding the, the marketplace and the value chain, right? How this product is going to move from, uh, from, from the ground to a, you know, battery manufacturing vessel plant in, in, in Monterrey, right? These are very big transitions that are happening. I think technology is going to have a huge responsibility in accelerating them and also making sure that we don't end up in a situation where 30 years from now, we're looking back on a generation of human rights errors of serious environmental degradation, right? There's an opportunity and there's a consciousness to get ahead of this, right? And so the tools and the solutions need to be there before these these mines are being are being built. Um, that's an area I'm super excited about. You, you mentioned ag tech as well. Uh, you have this sort of dynamics in the ag tech space that I think are super important to kind of pin down and really drive the the, the exciting investment opportunities. One is very sophisticated um, industrial incumbents, right? The Driscolls and Monsantos of the world, they all have operations in South America, um, Carbill, very, very sophisticated um, enterprise customers, enterprise partners. Two, really rich ecosystem of VCs uh, that specialize in access. So Yield Lab, uh, SP Ventures, these are funds that have deep, deep expertise. Their LPs reflect those, those industry incumbents. Um, and they can speak to a broader audience of investors and say, we've acted for this technically. We understand the market better than anyone. And that gives a level of confidence of later stage capital. So that's super, super important. And then just look look at, at the at the macro environment here, right? We have the United States, for example, 94% of agricultural production is concentrated among seven, seven producers. In Latin America, it is much more distributed. You have smallholder farms producing a lot more of the, the bounty per region. And and I think with that, you have just a huge opportunity to to create um, create solutions to to improve their operations, to improve their access to capital, to improve their yields, um, and share best practices across these many uh, smaller operations. You mentioned Boric's plan to nationalize the lithium production in Chile. I mean, from my perspective, it's unclear if that's a good move or a bad move. I think you have a million times more insight on that. So is that is that something that, are they going down the right track with that or, or the wrong path? Yeah, it, it's it's a great question. I think history history might dictate in, in South America specifically that the nationalization of industries has been a short-term short term boom for private producers and, and private regional players, but have been long-term disruptive to, to the maturity of the industry and their ability to, to work effectively with international players and be a part of the global value chain. I I'm optimistic about I'm optimistic about the Chile Chile experience. I think they're a very sophisticated sophisticated incumbent mining industry. I've been close to some of the founders on the ground there, building solutions, and and they also are optimistic, especially for homegrown entrepreneurship to support it. And look, the reality is that there there are uh, intervening uh, industrial players from around the world who are coming and setting up shop and intend, intending to set up shop in, in Chile. And I think if you're Chilean. You're getting calls from your your you know, domestic providers and saying, "Hey, we can we can do this. Give us a chance." Um, so I think it, it it makes the competitive bidding process a little bit more more localized, which I think is going to be good for for the for the local producers. I think what remains to be seen is how is this going to impact um, production. At the end of the day, that's what really matters. How efficiently can this production can these licenses be given 
um, and can can this this the supply side be be increased in in an ethical and and um, effective way? So, just two weeks two weeks hot off the press. I'm you know having one or two calls a week talking to folks about this, but um, let's see. Amazing. I appreciate that that very good answer, even though it was only two weeks old. I have a question, and I think the audience might like this answer. What is your favorite restaurant in Mexico City? My favorite trip, great, great question. Um, so it's it's a restaurant that I just opened, wine bar with with some of my closest friends here in here in Mexico City. It's called Nip. It's in La Condesa. So we're a wine bar, but we have uh, small platillos that we we also serve. And really, the, the motivation for this for this project is kind of twofold. You know, one was always you know having friends that work in the hospitality industry and, and the wine industry and just really falling in love with that work in my personal life and always wondering if that was something that, that I could, could do. Um, so we got together with a few friends, really diverse, diverse backgrounds from an architect to, to a designer, to a sommelier. And, and we, we built this concept, um, which is really driven by kind of one or two ideas, right? One is that we want to have this new place where, the top creatives in Mexico City can see as part of their portfolio. So what does that mean? We had partnerships with uh, Costaya, which is one of the most um, fullest emerging fashion brands. She did all of our, Patricia did all of our, our uniforms. Worked with a brand called X-Band, which does bespoke speaker design for our listeners in the back. We had uh, Hotel, which is a friend of mine who started a great you know, plants, plants business. He curated all of our outdoor plants, right? So the idea that this space can be a Somewhere where where these creative seeds they're up, right? And they come and they create a plant and that's that's our community. And then the other is just offering um offering a place that that you can you can come for for a great glass of wine and great plate that you might not find anywhere else. So one of our partners runs a wholesale wine importer called Climax. And so he has access to to the wines that have been covered in dust for for a hundred years and and offering that to customers and seeing seeing it's not on the right group for signs and it's super joy. So I hope I hope you'll come sometime soon. It's amazing. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to the upcoming time that I will get to go. So I'm excited about that. I want to ask a very broad question, and I'd love to see where you take this one. What are you most excited about right now? Yeah. So a lot of things. Um, two, two things work related that I'll mention. So one is our catalyst program which we've been building for a number of years with the GIZ, which is one of the agencies of Germany, and Tech de Monterrey, which MIT of Mexico is one of the most elite engineering universities in the world, um, to seed and support with non-dilutive capital, pre-seed and early stage climate-oriented startups in Latin. So, you know, we talk a lot about ecosystems, we talk a lot about different stages of capital raises. And I think we identified some, some number of years ago that this sort of pre-institutional capital, pre-product market fit space is is ripe for for supporting early stage entrepreneurs, right? So that that program is coming online um, later this year, and it's been incredible multinational collaboration between an incredible university, a development agency, a venture capital firm, and many many other other players along along the way. I'm super excited for that for that program to come online and see how that encourages more more founders in the space um and younger and the other piece that i'm really excited about is even in just the year and a half that i've 
that I've been with Delta here in Mexico City. So I have observed this trend around truly elite founders in Latin America choosing their next bet to be in the climate innovation space. And I think that says a ton about where, where the puck is going. So um, Sebastian Morales, for example, you know, one of the co-founders of Property has since launched Gia Energy, which is an energy return service based out of Colombia. You know, that's a guy that could have done a lot of things after he left, after they left Rappi. Um, and he chose to do that. And of course, it, there's a commercial opportunity there, certainly, but there's a massive impact opportunity as well. So seeing that is really, really inspiring. Now, some of that former CFO, former CFO of Newbank has since launched Mumbach, which is which is a platform to improve the quality of, of offsets and, and forestry, um, forestry carbon drawdown in 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 Brazil. You know, again, somebody that could have done a lot of things chose to do that. Jack Seri from um, from Vano in Brazil, you know, launching uh, battery swapping um, electric electric motorcycle service to support the over five million moto boys across Latin America. We're delivering night food and um, and rapis all across the continent, right? Again, a guy that could have done a lot of things and chose to do that. So many more examples I could, could mention there. Um, but that gives me a lot of of inspiration and excitement about this ecosystem and specifically this climate climate ecosystem. They're gonna have a great breakout success. They're gonna gain the attention from um, international funds, early stage transfers, they're going to chart the path for this region. So I'm really excited about that. Chris, I want to ask one last climate tech question and then bring it to the finale. But I, I'd like to ask, how is climate tech in Latin America different from climate tech in the U.S. and Europe? Certainly. Um, so first and foremost is regulatory support. Uh, you could say that regulatory is, is a carrot or a stick. But in the U.S. with the IRA, you have the U.S. government playing referee, customer, and supplier. Um, it is one of the largest. Um, the IRA is one of the largest. Checks out one of the largest um, um, injections of capital into from the government to support a specific innovation sector in almost forty years. Um, and where public capital goes, private capital quickly follows. So that is going to be it huge, huge transition for the US and Europe and Europe um, is calling suit. And and I think in Europe you have you have a higher level of consumer and enterprise consciousness around climate. And that's huge. Um, they are at the frontier of supporting um, emerging emerging technologies. For them, you know, direct air capture was a thing in the 2010s, right? We're talking about phytomining and you know, very, very emerging, emergent themes and, and, and products and technology there. And when I look at when I look at Latin America, the the challenge is that you don't have the same level of of regulatory and, and government support around subsidies, around R and D support, around regulatory encouragement. I mean, I think you know a lot of people have spoken to a lot of people about how you know how Mexico has limited um, their, you know, regulatory intervention over the last couple of years, really sort of hamstrung the renewable energy ecosystem. Um, so it's, it's, it's a more complicated environment, but, and there are less uh, tee-ups, I would say, that you see in, in, in Europe and the US. But also there are just massive opportunities if you can make things uh, not trick people at green premium and create technologies that are, that are highly scalable and, and 
localized to the problems that people are trying to solve. So I'll give you a specific example here. Keely Mall is, um, is a two-sided marketplace, water offsets platform based, uh, based here in Mexico with one of their biggest customers being Coca-Cola in, in Northern Mexico. So I'm sure people have read that Monterrey experienced a, a day zero last year, which is, which is terrifying, you know, lack of um, potable water. And what, what Kingdom Law is doing is, is brought within a single watershed. They are encouraging uh, small older farmers to be more efficient with their water usage. And then with that, with that savings, selling offsets to major corporates, Coca-Cola, for example. And that sort of local solution, which was obviously built in the context of these kinds of cities with large in the, with large industries such as such as Monterrey, but also within a single watershed, they have agriculture, right? It was a unique solution to that problem, but it's highly scaled and will be will be repeatable across Latin America and in other regions. So I think we have to look for those sorts of opportunities here where um where the solution is not going to come from anyone else, but it will benefit everyone else. You know, there's a there's a great course at at Stanford called Designing for Extreme Environments. And and I think that this is a great example, right? And there are many of those across across the region that I get excited about and I see where they can be scaled and brought to other parts of the world as well. And and leapfrog in many ways some of the learnings and and um and sort of headwinds that you know technologists and entrepreneurs have faced in, in Europe and the US. Amazing. Okay, so finally, I have to ask Peter Thiel's famous contrarian question with a uniquely Samia VC twist. What important truth about Latin America do very few people agree with you on? So, um, I'll, I'll, get, I'll return to the to the mining the mining space. So, um, I take you know foreign affairs in school, and you know I've always been interested in these these kinds of topics. So, um, you know, imagine a situation where China invades Taiwan in the next three or four years. The U.S. Uh, attempts to intervene militarily in the South China Sea, and we end up in a situation where China, with with a single phone call, could say, "We're limiting the export of cobalt from the DRC. We are uh, and refining uh, refining services, of which they are a leader worldwide, is limited to only those that are allied with the with the Chinese." Say goodbye to your net zero commitments. Say goodbye to battery electrification um, goals. That will put Tesla, General Motors, the biggest car manufacturers of the United States into a serious, serious bind. And that's just thinking about auto, right? There are so many places where those inputs, uh, where those inputs are critical to, to the production, right? And critical for the underpinnings of the US economy. So, what I would say, which maybe most of one believe in, is that the next five years are the most important years for the Americas to come together from a diplomatic and economic and trade perspective. And I'm not talking about just the US MCA. I'm talking about multilateral relationships between the US and South, South America, whether it's Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, these major producers of minerals. And this is a this is a strategic and, and geopolitical risk, if not. Um, so I think I will be shocked if, if that isn't top, top priority for, for the U.S. State Department in the coming years. 
for these, you know, for the Chilean government, how they're thinking about nationalizing the industry and, and deciding who, will, you know, how are they going to cut up the pie of production, the who and when, um, because I think it, it, it poses a serious, serious risk to, to, to West, Western democracy. So, um, you know, that's something I think in the next five years, we're going to see, you know, tremendously. Wow. Wow. Okay. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the SME VC podcast today. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you, my fam. Peace in. Thank you for watching this episode of Samia VC. Make sure to like and subscribe wherever you view the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Gorman Trip. And be sure to check out our newsletter, Deal Flow LA, which can be found by going to dealflow.la.